Good morning. Aha. I had it on mute. We want to welcome everybody watching by live stream. We're super excited. We're very honored that you would join us this resurrection morning. And it is the resurrection of Jesus. And it's what we celebrate. The resurrection isn't just an event. It's an experience that all are invited to be a part of. So this isn't just a historical event. This isn't just something that happened. This isn't something we look at or even something that we admire. It's something that we are called to become a part of and we're called to experience. It's the greatest history in all of human, on all of human history. There is no single event greater than the resurrection of Jesus. Well, we put a man on the moon. That's pretty important. Yeah, okay. With the resurrection of Jesus is the most important thing that's ever happened. Time itself has been divided from the resurrection. Before Christ, we have B.C. After Christ, we have Annus Domine, right? The year of our Lord. So every year and every day that proceeds beyond the resurrection is A.D. Every time, everything before the resurrection is B.C. That's how significant this is. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in His great mercy has given to us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection. So what we learn through the resurrection is that we can have a new birth, we can have a new beginning, we can have a a restart, but not a restart based upon the old, a, a restart based upon the new. And it's a living hope. The Christian faith is a living faith. It's different than every other faith on the planet because the God that we serve is alive in us. He lives in us. Our faith is alive. Our God is alive. Romans 1.14 or 1.4 says this. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead. According to the power of the Spirit of holiness, there have been many people who have claimed to be God, but only one has proven it. A lot of people proclaiming to be God. We had somebody down here claim to be God, right? There's some dude down here in Miami running around saying he was God. And you all know what I'm talking about? I don't know if you're saying he was God or he's the Antichrist. He was one of them. He was claiming to be something. <laughs> A lot of people, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? You know? <laughs> and we're not going there. But, um, but th- there's a lot of people throughout history who have claimed to be God. But Jesus is the only one who's proven it. And he proves it through the resurrection from the dead. He said, I will give my life away. I will be crucified. And three days later, I will rise. He said, I have the power to lay down my life. And I also have the power to take it up again. Jesus is not a victim. It's important, especially as God's people, that we not view Jesus as a victim for not one moment of any part of the time that he was here, was he ever a victim? We cannot mistake or confuse his vulnerability or his humility with weakness. He was never weak. He was in control of it the entire time. Pilate said, don't you know I have authority over you? And Jesus said, don't you know I could ask my father and he'd send 10,000 angels? He says, you have no authority over me above at all if it wasn't granted to you from above. No power over him. He yielded himself. They tried to take his life several times. They could only take it when he let it happen. That's the only time that they could ever take Jesus' life. was because they let him. He let them. Even on the cross, the Bible says he willed his death. The Roman spear didn't take his life. The blood believing his body didn't take his life. Jesus held his life until the moment that was required. And he cried out and gave up his spirit. He yielded his life. No one took his life from him. Biology didn't take his life. He gave it away. And he was raised from the dead, proving himself to be God. He has the total and complete control over his own life. We don't. We don't know the hour of our death. We cannot control very, very little things about our lives that we can control. We can't control the beating of our heart. 
It's an involuntary response. We can't control even our respiratory system. So I can hold my breath, yeah, for what, like four minutes? Maybe, if you're lucky. We have little to no control over our lives. The things that make us alive, we have no power over. Your heart beats because God said so. You breathe because the Lord commands it. It's something even science can't understand. What makes the heart beat? We know it's electrical impulses through a muscle, yes. But why are those electrical impulses being sent? And what causes them to stop? We, we understand certain things, but we don't know the why of it or the how, how it happens. Where, where does that actually come from? Jesus was in complete control of his life. He willed his life and he willed his resurrection. Proving himself, the Bible tells us, to be who he says he was. And that's God. His conviction was for blasphemy. A lot of people don't know that. What did they crucify him for? Did they crucify him for being Mr. Rogers? That's not why Jesus was crucified. He wasn't crucified because he was a good man. And he was trying to invite people into his neighborhood and people didn't want to come. That wasn't why they crucified him. He wasn't running around in a sweater vest. Nothing wrong with Mr. Rogers, but that's not Jesus. That's not the image of Jesus. He was crucified because he, the, the charge that hung over him was blasphemy. He was crucified because he claimed to be God. The priest tore his clothes when Jesus confessed that he was God. Tore his clothes. He says, have we heard enough? He, this man proclaims blasphemy. Are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? He says, it is as you said. And he, he tears his clothes. And the charge that was over him was blasphemy. That was the charge placed there by Pilate. He was in control of the situation. And Jesus looked at that and said, claiming to be God, you crucify me. Guilty as charged. In Christ we are set free by the blood of his death and so we have the forgiveness of sins because of the richness of his grace. The first thing that you can experience through the resurrection is the forgiveness of sins. Can I get a witness? Sin is man's greatest problem. Our, all of our thing, everything about us, the corruption, the deception, the evil, the wickedness, the, the, the bad habits, the hang-ups, all flow from the root of sin. Sin pollutes the soul with guilt and shame and regret. We've all done a few things we can regret, right? We all have guilt. We all have shame. But somehow when we're born, we just carry with us this darkness that we're not even aware of. There's a weight of sin or there's a weight of guilt. There's something that's over us like almost our entire lives until we come to Christ. Jesus gives us the forgiveness of sins. No one can take away your sins but Jesus. Good works can't take away your sins. The sin... God told the people in the book of Isaiah, though you wash with much soap and lie, and we're sanitizing right now, right? I told first service, the most attractive scent in the world right now is bleach, right? <laughs> we're not looking for, uh, you know, Armani or whatever, canoe, or, you know, I'm going to go wet, Jeanette. Let's go back. Let's really go back. We're not really looking for these crazy fragrances. Most of us now are looking for the smell of bleach. We want to know, do I smell bleach in this room? Okay, I'm good. So we're sanitizing, and God tells his people, though you sanitize and you use much sanitation, yet your sin remains. You can't wash it away. You can't get rid of it. And then he tells them in Isaiah again, he says, but let's you and I settle this matter. This is what he says to mankind even today. This is what he's saying to the world today. This is what he's saying the Christians have have." have partaken of this gift and so we in turn have experienced what i'm talking about but to those that don't know jesus this is what he says you have sin in your life and you can't get rid of it though your sins are like scarlet they will be white as snow the lord says let's you and i have a conversation on this let's settle this once and for all let me take that red stain from your life let me take that blemish from your life and let me make it white as snow 
Though your sin is red as crimson, I will make it pure like wool. This is a promise that only Jesus can fulfill. This can't be done through any other means. Education can't do it. See, in America, you know, the gods of the land, people worship foreign gods, and in foreign countries, their gods are very evident what they worship. In America, our gods are not that evident. We don't have an idol on the wall. We don't have a statue. We don't have a temple with monkeys running everywhere to tell us that's the people's gods. But in America, what we worship more than anything is intellect. We have intellectual idolatry. We think we know. There's nothing wrong with your intellect. It's given to you by God. But intellect is not the hierarchy, the hierarchy of man. The hierarchy of man is spirit, soul, which is mind, will, and emotion, and then body. Man's spirit is to hold the hierarchical position of his life. But in our world, we don't, we don't do that. We suppress the spirit or deny spirit altogether, and we worship intellect. That's what we do. And so we say, we say things like, well, I'll see it when I believe it, or I'll believe it when I see it. And the Lord says, no, you must believe it, and then you'll see it. The kingdom of heaven is completely inverted to the kingdom of men. Completely opposite. We have sin in us, and we say we don't believe in sin. Well, it's there whether you believe in it or not. Isaiah 59, this is what separates people from the knowledge of God. One of the things that sin does is it pollutes. It pollutes our soul and makes our soul corrupt. Guilt, shame, and regret. And then every time we sin, the guilt, the shame, and the regret only gets greater. And the psychologist will tell you to practice self-denial. Just practice denying the guilt. Practice denying the shame. Well, that would be great if it works, but it doesn't. That's why people spiral into depression. It's because that technique does not work. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing. Nowhere, no how, nothing can take it away. And Isaiah tells us that not just, well, the Bible tells us that sin pollutes and sin separates. So our soul is polluted, but we're also separated. We're born separated from God. Sin separates us to the uttermost. If we look around and just take a cursory view of the world today, we can see that people are separated. The scripture would get a little more detailed and it would actually use the word lost. We are lost to what? We're lost to who God is. That's what sin does. It makes us lost. The world's running around making up God, creating a God as they understand him to be, saying there is no God, saying I think God's like this, I think God's like that. The only God that exists is the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible can be known. And he's known in the person of Jesus Christ. In him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything you think you know about God, if it's not found in Jesus, you believe wrong. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from ourselves. Crisis of identity. That's what we have. Constant crisis of identity. Separates us in our relationships. We don't know how to make relationships work. Divorce rates like 50%. <laughs> Worldly divorce rate. Evangelical divorce rates a lot lower. They never tell you that though. Nobody ever tells you that it's about maybe 38%, give or take, between 35 and 38% for born-again Christians. That's Christians who actually believe the Bible and follow the Lord. The divorce rate's much lower than it is in the culture. But they always say, well, the divorce rate's 50% in the church. Well, well who are you, who, what data are you feeding into that model? Not all Christians are the same. Not every Christian that says they're a Christian is exactly what, you know, how God would define it, how God would interpret it. There's a lot of Christians that don't believe the word of God is true. There are. They have intellectual belief, but their hearts are not converted. That's a big difference. Jesus clearly tells us that. There's a lot of people that claim that they're going to be believers, only to be shocked to find out that they're actually not. 
because what they qualified themselves as as a Christian is not what heaven qualifies themselves as. Well, Lord, I was in church every Sunday. You should be in church if you're a believer. But church doesn't save you. Church develops you. Church transforms you. Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? Jesus said, you didn't do any of these things. I don't know who you are. Sin separates us. Isaiah 59 says, the Lord's hand is not too short that he cannot say. Neither is his ear heavy that he can't hear you. Lord, do something in my life. Lord, listen to me. And he says, but these things don't happen because your iniquities are separating you. And your sins hide his face from you. Our separation is a root cause of sin. Sin causes corruption and pollution. Sin causes separation. And we are hopeless and helpless to do anything about it. That's the message of the kingdom. Jesus does for us what we could not do for ourselves. You can't do it. You can't do it. The weight the Christian bears upon themselves is they keep trying to think that they can do it. You can't do it. You can't even follow Jesus without him giving you the power to do so. You can't even come to Jesus without the Spirit illuminating your heart. Now the Spirit will illuminate your heart and you have the choice of doing something with that, receiving it or rejecting it, but the only way your heart can even be illuminated is if the Lord does it. And then He calls us to follow Him. And as a Christian, you cannot follow Him without power. It's impossible. We, he, he tells us to follow Him. Well, that's great, but human effort isn't going to get it done. Nobody can follow Jesus on human effort. Anybody try? I've tried. <laughs> but when I, when I walk and I follow him by the power that he gives to me through the Holy Spirit, it's a whole lot easier. And so what happens is, is then we get all guilty and we get condemned because we can't do what Jesus is asking us to do. Exactly. In and of yourself, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Our separation and our sinfulness and all of these things happen in our life because of sin. The resurrection changes this. All we like sheep have gone astray. That means every single one of us. We've turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The root of man's sin is narcissism. <laughs> no, it's a real popular word. It's funny. It's like, that's like the, if there's a buzzword in the psychological field today, it's narcissism. Books, blogs, all kinds of stuff on narcissism. Do we even know what narcissism is? Narcissism is self-worship. It comes from the Greek god Narcissus. Narcissus laid by a pool of water all day staring at himself. So all he did all day long was stand, lay on the ground and stare at himself. I am amazing. It's all about me. All I can think about is what means. All of my relationships are about me. Everything I do is about me. It's about my feelings. It's about my thoughts. It's about what I want. Narcissism. That's the root of all sin. Narcissus had a best friend named Echo. So not only did Narcissus like to look at himself, Narcissus liked to hear, this, hear himself talk. So whatever Narcissus said, Echo would bring it back to him. You're amazing, Narcissus. You're amazing, Narcissus. It would come back and forth. There is no God. There is no God. You're your own God. You're your own God. Self-worship. Self-idolization. That's the root of our sin. God, you will be like God. That's what the devil told Adam and Eve. And that's the, that's the bait they took. The Bible says that Jesus was made the offering for sin. That's what Isaiah 53 is telling us. That we're separated and that sin has separated us. And that we can't do it. We can't reconcile ourselves. And that the only way that we can be reconciled is through Jesus, who's the only one who was given for our sins. That's what the resurrection's about. 
The cross was about dealing with man's sinfulness. The resurrection testifies of the victory that Jesus has won over sin. The victory's won. We're victorious. Jesus was never a victim. He is a victor always. And he wins this victory and he hands it off to you. You're victorious. Sons and daughters of the highest. Born on purpose with a purpose. Sons and daughters not just of the highest with an inheritance, but your sons and daughters endowed and clothed with his spirit. And the Bible says you're sons and daughters of fire. I'll try that one on. Let's just get to the point where we're sons and daughters. And we can just get our mind around that. Then we, then we start to understand that what we really are, we're transformation, transformational beings in the earth transformational beings within our own life but then the ignition of the spirit of god in our life is to create transformation in the world around us that's the destiny of the believer that's the destiny of the believer nobody's like jesus gives it to you say i don't feel like it it doesn't matter he gave it to you i don't look like a son and daughter it doesn't matter he, he, that's what you are he calls you what and who you are long before you get there he says daughter your daughter on day one your son on day one. When you receive Christ, you are an heir of his kingdom on day one. You don't work your way into it. He gives it to you. And your job is to spend the rest of your life pursuing that identity. Pursuing Christ in light of that identity. I'm a son of the highest. What does that mean? I'm a daughter of the highest. What does that mean? How am I to live my life? How am I to make my decisions? How am I to go forth? As a son of the highest, what would my father's business be in this world? What would my father's business be through me? That's the pursuit. The pursuit is never our own devices. That's why the gospel oftentimes in the West is preached narcissistically. We tell them, Jesus, and it's all about you. It's all about Jesus, kind of, but really it's all about you. It's all about your comfort. It's all about how you feel. <laughs> Was the temperature too cold? Was the band too loud? Do you like the paint? Was the pastor's preaching good? Nine, ten, six, three, two. It's not about Jesus. It's about you. That's a narcissistic gospel. It's not about you. It's about him. Your life is not, it's not Jesus on your agenda. It's taking your life and turning it into his. What does that look like? That's the pursuit. That's how we work out our salvation. That's how we move forward is through that process. What does it mean to be a son in my business? What would my father have me to do as a son or a daughter in the work field that I have? Would he actually have me to stay in this work field? If it's yes, then what would he have me to do with it? What would my father have me to do with my money, my resources, my relationships, my children? Everything is filtered through the kingdom. Everything is filtered through the identity and the understanding that you are a son and a daughter. Every single decision is to be made based upon that truth alone. That's how the kingdom ignites. That's how the gospel begins to work. The gospel, though, oh, Christian, I've tried Christianity. I've had Christian. Anybody ever heard that? I tried Jesus, it doesn't work. Yeah, because you tried Jesus because you think it's all about you. Jesus is never about you. He's about himself. He calls you back to himself. And he's just not going to bless your mess. Seek first the what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does that mean? Seek first the kingdom of God and what is right to him. And everything will be added to you. He didn't say, seek first your own little kingdom and then seek first whatever's right to you. He doesn't say that. That's not the language, but yet that's how we teach it. It's all about you. All about you. <laughs> it's all about your comfort. No, it's about your conformity. It's, not, it's your transformity out of your conformity. It's not about you. Jesus is desiring to conform you into his image by transforming you in everything you do, in every way that you think. That's the gospel. Truth, that's the true gospel. 
That's the pure gospel. That's the uninfiltrated gospel. You and I on Christ's agenda. We in him, we live, move, and have our being. Everything we are is, about for, is for him. Every single thing in your life is for his glory. Everything. Your marriage is not for you. Oh, I know. We, that's, that's why marriages fail. Our marriages fail because we look at each other and we think the marriage is for us. The marriage has nothing to do with you. The marriage is for his glory. That's why we get married according to the way he says. We live according to what we say. I relate to my wife, not the way I want to, but the way he says, because my marriage is not for me. My marriage is for his glory. My children are not for me. My children are for his glory. My job is not for me. My job is for his glory. My workplace, my business, my home, everything about you is not for you. It's for his glory. That's the truth. And so what we have to do is we have to reconfigure the way that we think. We have to reconfigure. We have to back up and go, whoa, 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 whoa. And we have to start asking tough questions. What would it mean if I was to operate my business? Lord, how would you have me to do it? What does this look like? How does this, how do, and, and you just live that as a pursuit and start taking the steps that he reveals to you. Everything would change. And what would happen is heaven would flow. Heaven doesn't flow because we are not in his dominion. We're over here saying flow and the rain's falling right here, but you're standing over here. The Lord says, move over into my space and let my rain come upon you. And you're like, no, Lord, we need you to move over me. This is what I want. This is what I think. This is the way I want it. He doesn't bless it. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you. He loves you. He loves his sons and daughters. He loves his children. But he can't bless you. Your children ever do anything that you can't bless? Right? Mommy, you know, whatever. There's something that your kids have done that have violated something or are outside of the blessing and they want you to bless it. Like, I can't bless that, but it doesn't mean you don't love them, right? My son loves Snickers bars. I tell this story all the time. When he was a kid, he wanted to eat Snickers bars morning, noon, and night. Snickers bars and Coke, that's all he wanted. And he thought we were torturing him because we would not give him Snickers bars and Cokes. You know, you don't love me. You won't let me have a Snickers bar and a Coke. My neighbor, my friend of mine, he, he knew this really well. And so for Christmas, unbeknownst to Sherry and I, he comes and bring, brings a case of Snickers bars and a case of Coke for my son for Christmas. My son's like eight years old, you know. So we're like, don't give him that. He's like, see, he loves me. He gave me cake Snickers bars and Cokes. God has so much for you. But what you're asking for, he cannot bless you with because it's not healthy for you. It's not good for you. It's not designed for you. That's not how you're made. You can't put, can you put diesel fuel in a gasoline car? You cannot. Can you put water in a gasoline car? You cannot. Because the car is not designed to operate on that fuel. The car will not run very far on that fuel. We experience the, fear, the, 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 the fearlessness of death. This is another thing we get with the resurrection. One of the greatest testimonies of the life of the believer is that we have no fear of death. I mean, you wouldn't know that right now with the coronavirus and everything. You, the last thing you'd think is that Christians don't fear death. Oh, my gosh. You know, but our testimony, one of the testimonies of the faith of the believer throughout the ages was a fearlessness in the face of death. Plagues did not shut the church down. They didn't. We had an influenza virus in the early 1900s. It didn't shut the church down. We have tyrannical governments and oppressive regimes that, don't sh- that have never failed, have never succeeded in shutting the church down. Whether by plague or by oppression. Whether by plague or by persecution. The church maintained its meeting. 
Yet somehow in 2020, we're found wanting. Somewhere along the line, we're the first generation that vacates our position. What is wrong with us? It will not be me. Heaven will not look to me and say that this pastor was not faithful in standing in his pulpit. It will not be me. God's house will not be vacant. Many can choose and you can wax and say, this is the wisdom. We need to be wise. In whose wisdom? Man's or heaven's? And we need to be submissive to the government. And whose wisdom? And whose government? Heaven's or man's? There's no law that prevents the assembly. None. Anybody that thinks that's true, they don't know. They don't know. The American church is the only church that's given and guaranteed the right of assembly. And guess what? No matter what. It's important that we understand this. I know I come across strong. (laughs) People think, oh, you're too strong. We're just little lambs. You're lions. You're lions. If they told you to get on a COVID train and go to a COVID camp, would you go? Many people would. Oh, the government told me I have to get on a COVID train. And I have to go to a COVID camp. Away we go. We are different. We are not of this world. That offends some. If I offend you, I make no apology. I am sorry that you're offended, but it's not my intention to offend you. That is not my intention. (laughs) It's not my intention to offend you. If you're offended by that, take it up with Jesus. He's never done that. Doesn't apply to the people. Let me be clear. If you're not feeling well, please stay home. If you're very scared or unsure of the hour and the moment, please stay home. (laughs) Please. If you are at risk in this population, please stay home. If you fall into that high risk category, please be wise and stay home. My message isn't to the believers, it's to the churches. It's to the leaders, guys. The leadership cannot vacate their rights of responsibility, no matter what. Well, we're going to preach from the living room, not me. I'm going to preach from the place he's appointed me. If it's a street corner, it's a street corner. But he's given me this house and here I will stand. I'm not going to my living room. (laughs) They bar the door, you know, and I can't cut through the roof somehow. I mean, you know, maybe, but (laughs) we're sons and daughters of the highest. We're people of faith, guys. And we need to remember that fear of death. We have no fear in death. We have no fear in death. 180,000 people are going to die in accidents this year. You're nine times more likely to die in an accident as you are with the coronavirus. Just a thought. You're 35 times more likely to die of heart disease this year than the coronavirus. You're three and a half more times more likely to die of the influenza virus. Three and a half times this year. 90,000 Christians are murdered every year. Every single year, 90,000 Born-again, believing Christians are murdered in the earth for their faith. You have a higher percentage of being murdered for your faith than you do of dying of the coronavirus. It's just stuff to think about. Well, we shouldn't spread it. Yeah, the same people that are telling me they shouldn't spread it. My answer to you is, do you spread Jesus? Do you spread Jesus? You spread the fear of the coronavirus and you let everybody know. And I know because my phone blows up. You let everybody know. But if you spread Jesus... The church itself is contagious. We don't want the church to be contagious. Well, of course, for infectious diseases, but for the gospel, 100%. We are the carriers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're not to fear death. And what do we fear? We fear the unknown. That's where the fear lies. Fear is rooted in something that hasn't happened yet. (laughs) Has anything happened? No. Well, why are you afraid? We're afraid. Don't be afraid. 
To live is Christ, to die is gain. If you know your kingdom and your gospel, the Bible relates to us as dwelling in tents. So this world is nothing more than a tent to the believer. Charles Wesley, uh, Jonathan Wesley and his brother Charles, they were traveling across the sea coming to America. And this pastor, anybody know who Wesley is? The Methodist church was founded by Wesley. He's a pastor going to America, and he realized on the trip to America, he was not born again. How did he realize that? Because he was on a ship traveling with a bunch of Christians called Moravians. And the Moravians were on the ship, and the ship looked like it was going down, and Wesley was in a state of panic. But all of the, all of the Moravian children were singing. They were singing. And Wesley asked the Moravian leader, he said, how can these children sing? He said, these children do not fear death. And he realized in that moment that he feared death and that these children had something that he did not. How can these children sing when a ship is going down? And he he became converted. And Wesley, a pastor, holding a pulpit, teaching on his way to America to minister, recognized that he wasn't converted in his heart and that there was something that was missing because he feared death. He was afraid of dying. The Bible says, Inasmuch as we have the children are partaken of flesh and blood, Jesus shared the same, that through him we might destroy the one who had the power of, the de- of death. That is the devil. And through Christ we are released from the bondage of fear that we have been subject to our entire lifetime. And that fear is the fear of death, Hebrews says. One of the ways you know you're converted is when you don't fear death. It doesn't mean we wish for it, but we're not afraid of it. If you read the stories of the early church, they wished for it. They wanted it. Read the stories of these guys that get arrested and thrown to the lions. Not more. There's more than one. They're going to be thrown to the lions. They weren't begging for their lives. They were asking for gravy. Hey, man, can you get, like, give me a gravy bath before you throw me out there? Because if the lions don't come to me, I want to make sure that they do. That, that's the faith. And what it did is it testified to the Romans the Romans were not afraid. They would, they would look at these Christians. Every other person that we bring to this point begs for their life. The Christian wasn't begging for their lives. There's women that would come up out of the pit into the... They would, they would have to walk up into the Roman lines. And there's a story, I can't remember her name, but there's a woman and she walked up and she was singing. And she walked right at them. She came up out of the thing into the, into the arena where the lions were and she sat and was singing. <laughs> Polycarp told his followers, Polycarp was a disciple of John. He told his followers, do not ransom me. The Romans are coming. They're going to arrest me. And he told his followers, don't, 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 don't ransom me because you could pay the Romans and they'd let you go. Right? Don't put any money up for me. He said, if the lions will not take me, I will bid them to come. In other words, I'm going to get some gravy, man. I'm going to pour a little Heinz 57 sauce on me, you know, suntan lotion. No, I'm going to do A1. Come and get it right here. Where is that gone? We wonder why that generation changed the world. We wonder. We wonder how first century Christians enveloped the world because they held that they did not love their lives unto death. They did not hold their lives dear. And again, I'm not saying to be reckless. But at the same time, if you read the story of the plagues, the Christians went into the plagues. Huh? They didn't lock themselves in rooms and sequester themselves. They went to the places to minister. They were not afraid. They're like, well, you might get the plague. Well, if I do, then I'm going to go be with Jesus. I'm not saying, again, I'm not, you know, people, our, our generation gets really offended or like really weird at stories like that. But this is, what, this is where our power lies. Our power lies in the fearlessness of death. 
greatest testimony of the believer is the fearlessness of death. 90,000 Christians are killed every year for their faith. 250 million of them right now live under the threat of, of, of death or under the threat of imprisonment. 250 of your brothers and sisters right now in the world live under the threat of imprisonment or death simply for their faith. And you think you got it bad. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, they will live. He's the promise. So he takes away from us the fear of death. And Jesus says, you're going to live forever, Christian. You will live forever. There is no pain in death. There is no sting in death. The grave and death itself has been swallowed up in victory. Death, the power of death. Do you know the last enemy destroyed is death? So the last day when Jesus is throwing and your name's not in the book of life and he's throwing, everybody's being thrown into Gehenna and then he throws uh, the, the devil into Gehenna. The, the, last, the last enemy that's destroyed is death. Death is a separate entity. It's bound to the demonic kingdom, but it's a separate entity altogether. And the last one destroyed is death. Why is that? God has reduced death to a butler. That's all death is to the Christian. Death is your usher. That's all he is. He has no power over you. When you die, death goes, oh, I'm sorry, right this way. The most powerful entity, the most powerful of all of the fallen angels. Yes, Lucifer. But there's another one. Death is equally, is, has equal power. Equal. Isn't the one in charge, but has a tremendous amount of power. Death is a spirit. And so the spirit of death has been broken. Completely. This way, the, the spirit that holds sway through fear. Over the whole earth. To the Christian, he's no more than a butler. He's your usher. <laughs> oh, Christian? Oh, sorry. Mm, yes, mm, yes. Right this way. Right this way. Death's going to white glove you into the kingdom. And Jesus does it to mock him. He's mocked. That spirit will be mocked eter eternally. Yeah? Triumphing over them openly, the Bible says. Jesus Christ defeated the devil and triumphed over him openly. He's making a triumphal, open display of death. Death used to be an angel. Death has fallen. Death has changed. And so now all the angels get to see this mighty spirit that has been reduced to nothing. And all of the testimony of heaven will watch this once powerful angel be nothing more than a butler. An open triumph. And a complete and total defeat of death itself. That's what the resurrection's about. Complete and total death, victory over death. Death itself. Death, hell, and the grave. Resurrection proves the afterlife. Sin condemns us. Sin requires payment. That payment is received only through Jesus Christ. Or it is the eternal payment. So the, the deal looks like this. Look, we've all incurred a debt. We've sinned. And the Bible says that sin carries with it a debt. We, we're on borrowed time. And sin, we are on borrowed resources. And so we've accumulated a debt through sin that we cannot pay. And so Jesus comes to pay that debt for us. To forgive us of the weight of condemnation that's attached to sin. And offer us freedom through his name. Freedom through who he is. But if we reject that, then sin and death and hell will claim the debt that it's owed. When you die, people, people sin their whole lives. And it seems like we watch people and they're like, that guy doesn't seem like he goes through anything bad and he lives like the most corrupt sinner on the planet. Yes, but when he dies, that payment will be required upon death. Sin will extract the payment that it's owed. 
Maybe not in this life, but without a doubt in the afterlife. And either you're going to pay that payment or Jesus is going to pay it for you. And there's no one else who can. No one else can pay that payment for you except Jesus. A lot of people sin and nothing happens to them. Well, the devil doesn't care. He has no reason to afflict them. The only one he puts in the way of is those that are trying to come to Christ. Those are the ones he interrupts. Those are the ones he tries to stop. He has no reason to afflict a non-believer because he already owns them. They can keep stacking the debt higher and higher. He doesn't care. He doesn't care because sin ultimately will destroy and sin ultimately will condemn. And Jesus is the only one who deals with it. Christ died for, the, for our sins just as the scripture says, the Bible says. He was buried and raised from the dead on the third day. He was seen by Peter, then by the 12 apostles. Then he was seen by 500 more of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though many have died by now. Then he was seen by James, then all the other apostles, everybody else. Then he was seen by me too. What the scripture is telling us here is that Jesus fulfilled the scriptures and that the evidence of the resurrection is very, very clear. People wonder, where's the evidence of the resurrection? It's there. All you got to do is research it. The question isn't what, where the evidence of the resurrection is. The question is, is why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? If I said I saw the Queen of England at Starbucks drive-thru, that's what I told first service. If I told you I was at Starbucks drive-thru and I just saw the Queen of England, most of you would doubt me. You'd be like, oh, come on. You saw the Queen of England at Starbucks drive-thru? But then I was to parade 500 people in front of you and every one of them would go, oh, yeah, I saw her. She was downtown. Yeah, she held a meeting. Yeah, I saw her. You know, she was doing all this. But if 500 witnesses told you that the Queen of England was here, then you would believe it. 500 people witnessed the resurrection. 500 people saw Jesus. 500. More than. I'm sure there are innumerable more, but the Bible only goes thus far. The resurrection grants us access to the Holy Spirit. So what happens here is that when Jesus rises from the dead, Jesus says, what, what did he tell the disciples, right? Take up, follow me, right? Didn't he tell James and John and Peter and, and, and he told the, those, the, the brothers, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But he told them to follow him. And so the disciples were supposed to follow him, but they failed, didn't they? Every one of them, to the man, failed. And the reason that they failed was that you do not, they, like you, do not possess the power to follow Jesus in yourself. You cannot do it. They could not follow Christ because they did not have access in fullness to the Holy Spirit, so they couldn't do it. They kept trying. Peter said, I've got a sword. Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. Human effort. Peter's like, I got a sword. A lot of Christians are like, I know the word. I can follow Jesus. Well, look at Peter. He cut some people's ears off with that sword. You know? <laughs> so what happens is Jesus is crucified. He's tried. He's condemned. And all of the disciples ran. John chapter 20. Ready? So Jesus rose on Sunday morning. Mary solemn. She comes to the disciples and says, Hey, Jesus is alive. And they didn't believe her. They're like, You're out of your mind, woman. What have you been drinking? You know? Come on, Jesus is alive. And then she said, come and see. And James, Peter and John ran to the tomb. You guys know that story, right? The Bible says that Peter and John ran to the tomb. They had a foot race, literally. They raced. And John says, okay, John says, I outran Peter. So, you know, there was no competition there at all, right? And so they went into the tomb. Peter doubted, the scripture says, but John believed a miracle. So they saw evidence of the resurrection, but they hadn't literally seen Jesus. And that evening, they're all gathered together. That Sunday evening, the disciples were huddled together in a home with the doors locked for fear of the authorities. 
That doesn't apply today at all, does it? Suddenly, Jesus appeared standing there among them. So they had seen themselves. They had seen the circumstances. So they're looking at circumstances that were not, that were not good. And they're looking at themselves and saying, we don't have what it takes. The circumstances are not good. And we don't have it within ourselves. And then suddenly, Jesus appears to them. And they were frightened. And Jesus said, peace be with you. And there are people that are watching by live stream right now. And you're freaked out by the circumstances. And I would say to you, peace be with you in Jesus' name. It's going to be all right. We're going to get through it. It's going to, get, it's going to be over. It's going to make us better than we were before. Then he showed them the nails in his hands and the piercing in his side. And at that point, everything changed. Everybody say that. At that point, everything changed. When they saw Jesus, everything changed. Stop looking at CNN. Stop looking at all, you know, MSNBC. Stop listening to all the evil reports. The report's not good right now. Look at Jesus. When they saw Jesus, everything changed. Same story in Genesis. Isaac, it was a famine. Everybody's looking at the famine. Everybody's freaking out. The Bible says Isaac saw the Lord, and then he saw the Lord, and he sowed. He gave in the time of famine, and he reaped a hundredfold. What made him give? Was it the famine? The famine didn't make him give. He saw the Lord. What changed with these disciples? They saw the Lord. And then when they saw the Lord, suddenly they were overwhelmed with joy and they realized this is Jesus. What are we afraid of? And so then they got really excited because they just had an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus is like, hold on, you guys need to stay here and wait for the promise. Wait for the Holy Spirit, because it's been proven. Clearly, you know, by now you can't do what you want to do because you don't have the strength. The Christian does not possess the power within themselves to follow the Lord. That power comes only through the Holy Spirit. A communal relationship and a developmenting relationship with the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to the believer. Absolutely essential. It's not a byproduct. The Holy Spirit is the central figure of the church. Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit. He says, it is to your benefit that I go, because if I do not go, the Spirit of God will not come. But when He comes, all blasphemy against the Father will be forgiven. All blasphemy against the Son, but the Holy Spirit. No, Jesus centralized the Spirit of God's place in our lives. He puts the Holy Spirit, he's the administrator of everything Jesus paid for. And the only way you can access that is through encounter, relationship, and development with him. If you cannot, it's just not just encounter, it's relationship, and it's a development into the relationship with the Holy Spirit. That is the only way, the only way. But it is, there is a way, and it is possible, and it is available to every believer. The Holy Spirit seals the heart. So how do you know? So through the resurrection, we get the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit seals our hearts. The Bible says He is the down payment, the earnest deposit of the possession. Jesus puts the Spirit of God on your heart, and He shows you that you're born again. You belong to me. How do you know Christianity is real? Because Jesus lives in me. How do you know the gospel is real? How do you know that Jesus is different? Because His Spirit is inside of me. I can't explain it, but I prayed, I asked, and He came in me, and now the Lord lives inside of me. He seals your heart, and He ignites the soul. You come alive. The Holy Spirit is sent to ignite us, to set our lives on fire, to illuminate us, to take us from cowardly and make us courageous. That's His job, to burn, to move over you, to clothe you in power. You cannot live without power. You cannot know your purpose without power. Anybody have a blender? Yeah? That blender is useless unless it's connected to power, right? 
it looks pretty. Looks on the counter. You can put a little bow on it. You know, you can dress it up. You know, you can make it look real pretty if you want. But it's absolutely useless unless it's connected to power. Christians are useless unless they're connected to power. I hate to tell you that. But I will. The Bible says the salt of the earth. We're not good if we don't connect to power. We look good. We look pretty. We look fancy. We got all these nice little buttons and nice lid. Oh, this one's glass. Oh, this one's made out of stainless steel. You know, we're hardy. We're stout looking. But we're useless unless we're connected to power. We cannot fulfill our functions and our, and, and anything without being connected to power. The Spirit of God is essential. The resurrection gives us access to and demonstrates God's love towards us. This is beautiful. This is so beautiful. How does God demonstrate his love for us? Is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. He loves you. How do we know? Jesus says, how much do you love me, Jesus? And he said, this much. And he stretched out his arms and he died. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. He died for you when you were an enemy. Christians go, I don't know if God loves me. Man, if he died for you when you are an enemy, how much more does he love you now? He loves you all the more because you're now his daughter. He loves you all the more because you're now his son. But the cross demonstrates God's love for mankind. The resurrection demonstrates God. He did not have to do it. He did it for you. Jesus did not have to do any of this for himself. He did it for you. Love at its core is selfless. So watch this. Sin is selfish. Sin is self-centered. Sin is, it's all about me. Me, 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 me. Everything in my world's about me. Love is the complete opposite of that. Love does not seek its own. Love gives itself for another. Greater love is no one than this than to lay their lives down for their friends. John, 1 Corinthians 13, love does not seek its own. Love does not celebrate an evil. Love celebrates good. Love died for you. God is love. What is love? Your highest good. So when God is saying he loves you and God is saying I'm doing something for you, he's not doing it because of an emotional experience. When he's loving you, he's not thinking about puppies. He's not thinking about unicorns and rainbows and glitter. When Jesus loves you, he's looking at you in love saying, how can I benefit you? Love seeks the highest good. That's what the biblical definition of love is, to seek the highest good. God looking at mankind, realizing that mankind was lost, and saying, what is the highest good of these people? And he said, they need to be born again. They need to be saved. But that will require you to sacrifice yourself. And love says, I'll go. And so love comes down. Love personifies himself as Jesus Christ. Love lives, love dies, and love rises for you, for your benefit. Not for some emotional experience. Emotions are great. But God is not looking at you in light of emotion. He's looking at you in light of what is the highest good for you. That's how the Spirit of God works with you. When God is loving you, He's pruning branches in your life because He loves you. (laughs) He's cutting things away because it's no good for you. When you ask Him to work in your life, He goes to work. Not on your agenda, on His. Because He loves you. John 3.16, God so loved He didn't just love, he so loved. One of the first times I was meditating in the Bible, pastor told me, he said, just read your Bible and let the word start to speak to you. Let things start to come to you. Let the spirit of God begin to talk to you. One of the first times that ever happened was John 3.16. Seems pretty natural maybe. But when I read God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, I became fixated on the words so loved. Those words, so loved, for like three days, I kept thinking about so loved. 
God so loved. It wasn't that God so God loved. It was like, Kevin, I so loved. Loving you with an everlasting love. Loving you from afar. Loving you when you were separated from me. Wanting to do nothing but good in your life. That's what he said over Israel, right? When he looked at Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you as a hen does its chicks. But you would not. I wanted to brood over you. That's the word, brood. You ever see a, you ever see a bird brood over its chicks? Brooding. Okay? We had cats and our cats used to have kittens. And man, that cat would brood over those kittens. She'd just be parading around those kittens, brooding, showing them off. She'd come and put them on our bed and just lay there, cuddled around them, purring, showing off her kittens. She was brooding over her kittens. Look at the joy that I have found. Look at the joy that is mine. Look at how I nurture these cats and protect these cats. That's how God is to you. He wants to brood over you, but you've got to let him. Lord, brood over me. In your love, Lord, brood over me. Brood over this church. Brood over this nation. Brood over the nations, Lord, in this hour. Brood over us. He doesn't come to you in righteous anger or judgment. Listen, here's the deal. Jesus has the right to be angry. We've sinned against him. We've hated him. We've mocked him. We've falsely accused him. We've rejected him. We blame everything on him. It's all God's fault. Right? The devil has nothing to do with it. It's all God's fault. We have every right. We've broken covenant with him. The Bible says it's like chasing lovers. (laughs) If there's a woman in the house that allows her husband to chase lovers and doesn't get angry, please stand up. Is there a man in the house that allows her wife to chase lovers that are not him? Please stand up. It's not true. We understand that. We would never let let our fidelity be given to another. Yet God says that's exactly what my people do. Hosea. My people. So what are you talking about? My people, my, the ones who are supposed to know me, have gone after other lovers. <laughs> They've gone after shiny things. Oons, oons, oons. We love you, Jesus, but oons, 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 oons. says, you've gone after other lovers, and you've forgotten me. This is Hosea chapter 2, I believe. And he says, and because you have forgotten me, I will not be angry with you. He says, I will lead you to the place of Debar. I will bring you to a place of speaking. And I will bring you from the place of speaking to the valley of Achor, which is a place of rest. And from the place of rest, I will take you through the door of hope. And when I bring you through the door of hope, I will restore your vineyards. What? So here he's talking about a people who've betrayed him, a people who've talked, who turned away from him, a people who've just outright rejected him in every way. And the Lord's saying to you, I have every right to be angry with you, but I will not. I have every right to bring judgment upon you, but I will not. He doesn't come to us in righteous indignation, and he doesn't come to us in judgment. He comes to us in love. And he says, and when I bring you through the door of hope, And I give you back vineyards. Everything you've lost, I'm going to give it back to you. And once I'm giving it back to you, I'm going to speak kindly to you. I will speak kindly to you. And you can relate that verse to the mankind itself. There are many, God created a family through Adam and Eve, and they all went away and chased other lovers. And you can relate it to the church, and there's a lot of backsliding Christians that suddenly are rediscovering their faith, and that's a good thing. But you think God's angry with you. Who told you that? And there are people who've never known the Lord. And you think, God's angry with me. Who told you that? He loves you. He knows where you are. He knows you're chasing lovers. He knows you're over there doing things you shouldn't do. Smoking, drinking, and chewing. People, places, and things. Attitudes, actions, hearts. He knows where you are. Yet he doesn't want to speak to you in in, in anger. 
He doesn't want to speak to you in judgment. He wants to speak to you in love. And the Bible says he wants to speak kindly with you, but you've got to let him. You've got to let him. You've got to say, Jesus, speak kindly to me. Lord, be gracious to me. Speak kindly to me, Lord. Draw me away from where I've gone. Draw me away from where I am and draw me to you. I don't even understand all of this, but I'm willing to come. He tells you what he wants. You say, God's mad. Who told you that? Who told you that? Who told you God's angry? If you're a Christian, whoever told you that? Isaiah says, I will be angry with you no more. This is as the waters of Noah to me, speaking of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is as the waters of Noah to me. For as I swore in my wrath with the, blood of, with the waters of Noah, I wouldn't flood the earth again. So now I look to the blood of Jesus and I say to you, I will be angry with you no more. He's not angry with you. No, he said, well, I've sinned. Yeah, and sin is messing you up, but sin is not making God angry with you. If you're a Christian, the sin of condemnation is removed. There is therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8. So your sins, all your sins are doing now are not breaking, bringing condemnation, but they're, bringing, they're separating you from your purpose and your destiny. Just a thought. Hope does not disappoint, but God pours his love out in us. This is how we experience one of the things we have access to in the, in, as, through the resurrection. And the Holy Spirit is this love that moves in our lives, a love that just flows through our lives, an agapeo that is available to us in the Holy Spirit because of the resurrection. The resurrection shows us the meaning of our existence. We're not created for popularity. We're not created for possessions, positions, or pleasure apart from Him. If you're popular, your popularity should be used for Jesus. That's it. If, you, if you're successful, your success should be used for Jesus. I don't know how to do that. Well, why don't you ask the Holy Spirit, show me how to do that. And begin to listen. Begin to cultivate a hearing ear. Begin to cultivate a hearing heart. Get in His Word. Learn His Word. The Holy Spirit speaks a language, and it's called Scripture. Get in His Word. Learn His Word. And then begin to commune with the Spirit so the Spirit can speak to you in context to the Word. And He will guide you. Acts 17, For in Him we live, move, and have our being. Jesus says in John 15, Apart from me you can do nothing. <laughs> it's my life's verse. Anybody got a life verse? Anybody? You have a life verse? No? Two of you? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Mine is, apart from me, you can do nothing. I live by that verse. Why? Because I've learned that apart from him, I can do nothing. <laughs> I've learned that verse the hard way. And so now I go, I don't know anything. I assume nothing. Apart from you, Lord, I can do nothing. So at your word, at your will, at your instruction. Wisdom, power, strength, counsel, knowledge, and direction are found in him. And lastly, and probably most beautiful of all, is resurrection opens the way for eternal life. You're an eternal being. You're a spirit. You have a soul, which is your mind, will, and emotions, and you live in a body. The eternal part of you is your spirit. Your spirit is what makes you you. Every human being has a body. Every human being has a mind, has a will, and has emotions. What makes you distinct is the spirit that's inside of you. And your spirit is what will live forever. The Bible speaks in very clear terms when it comes to this stuff. It says that there is a death to the body and a life to the spirit, but there is also a death to the body and a death to the spirit, or a damnation, if you will, to the spirit. To the Christian, when our body dies, our spirits go on to life eternal. We have life in the Spirit now, and that life that we've been given now, when we die, we pass into it eternally. And those who die without Christ, 
their body dies, but their souls die as well. Their spirit dies. And that doesn't mean they cease to exist. It just means your spirit will suffer eternal separation. And all you got to do is do a nice word study on that, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. What does eternal separation mean? And you'll realize it's not a good thing. If you're without Christ, you will not only suffer the death of the body, you will suffer the death of the spirit. But that's not what God wants. God does not want people to die and then die eternally. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And we're all sinners. We all come to Jesus the same way. Every Christian comes to Christ the same way. There are no exceptions. We have to be born again. And we have to come to the becoming born again through the same process that I'm about to lay out to you. Every believer comes the same way. There's no other way. Jesus is the way, but we come to him a specific way. My question would, before I even go there, is if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? Some people say, well, I think I'd go to heaven, but I'm not sure. Well, you can be sure. Other people say, well, I think when we die, we just cease to exist and we go back underground. Who told you that? (laughs) Your biology teacher told you that? Oh, okay. Your belief in something does not create its reality in that sense. Just because you believe that there is no heaven and there is no hell does not mean that heaven and hell is not real. Well, I can't see heaven and I can't see hell. Well, you can't see gravity either. And people say, no, I can see gravity. No, you see the effects of gravity, but you cannot see gravity. Gravity is not quantifiable. Neither is love. Just a thought. So you can get up on a building and you can jump and you go, I don't believe in gravity. But gravity will prove its reality to you whether you believe in it or not. You can say, I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in an afterlife. I don't believe in hell. You can say all of that. But when you pass through the body, when your body dies and your spirit goes into eternity, that reality, that truth will reveal itself to you. You'll see that heaven and hell is exactly real. And it is as Jesus says it is. You don't have to die and you don't have to be, you don't have to die eternally and you don't have to be eternally separated. You can be sure. I stand here and I tell you and I tell everyone that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And eternity is a lot longer than this world. If we're lucky, we get 40, 60, 80, 100 years in this world. The Bible says that we live eternally, in eternity, which means time itself is not even measured. It is endless. And so you're going to spend a lot more time in eternity than you are in this temporal world. And where you spend eternity is predicated on only one thing, what you do with Jesus. Do you receive him or do you reject him? Do you confess him as Lord or do you deny him? He's liar, lunatic, and Lord, the writer said. Jesus does not give you an option to call him a good man. He's either a liar who thinks he's the son of God, and everything he said is is a lie. He's a lunatic that's out of his mind and went to the cross and claimed to rise for no reason, or he is who he says he is. He's Lord, but he has no, no other option. You can deny him as a liar. You can deny him as a lunatic, or you can accept him as Lord, but there is no place given for a middle ground. There's no place for uncertainty. You confess him or you deny him. And when you don't confess him, by default, you've denied him. You can be sure. There's a heaven to gain, a hell to shun. All have sinned. Every single person on the planet has sinned. We're all sinners. We're born sinners. 
We come to Christ and we become sons and daughters. But every single person is born in sin. The Bible says the wages, the penalty of that sin is death or eternal damnation or eternal separation. We're born sinners. The wages of that, what sin pays us back with, is eternal separation. But God has a gift for you. The Bible tells us in Romans that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. All have sinned. Payment of that sin, the wages of that sin is eternal separation, but God does not want it that way. And so he offers to you. He will not do for you what you will not receive. God will do nothing unless you accept it. He cannot save you just to save you. You have to agree and accept what he's offering. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. How do you get the gift? How do you open the gift? The Bible gives us, again, very plain prescription. prescriptions. All of us had to come this way. We had to go, hold on a second, I'm a sinner. Then we had to come to the understanding that I'm lost. And then we had to come to the understanding that I can't do anything about my lostness, but Jesus is offering me something. How do I receive it? That's how you become born again. And the Bible says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. It's not enough to believe in your heart. You have to open your mouth. You have to say it. You have, to, you have to pray the prayer, and you have to invite Jesus. That's the only way this happens. We must believe in our hearts and confess with your mouth. Not with your mind, but with your heart. Jesus said, if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, you I will deny before my Father in heaven. What the Scripture is telling us is there's no such thing as closet Christians. You have to come out and be numbered. Scripture tells us that Christians don't wear camouflage, we wear armor. Tells us we're cities on a hill. We're lights of the world. We're not to hide. Jesus hung openly on a cross for you. He's not ashamed of you. He wasn't ashamed to make the sacrifice for you. Why would you be ashamed to receive his gift? And people sitting in a room and maybe there's some other people with you and you feel embarrassed. Don't feel embarrassed. You'll stand before the Lord and you're going to be the only one standing there. Your friends aren't standing there with you. Every one of us will give an account of our lives before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible says. To the believer, our judgment will be unto reward. But to those who've rejected Christ, your judgment will be unto condemnation. Because you've rejected the only way to free you, the only way to forgive you. So we're going to pray. And if you're there and you're in a room, if you're by yourself or you're with other people, what do you care what people think? If you're there in a room with Christians, I tell the Christians to pray with you. We're going to pray with you. We're going to just say the prayer. Jesus is going to do all the heavy lifting. So let's pray together. Say, dear Jesus. I believe that you are the Savior, and I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. And so I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me, and I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. In all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. You say, that's it? No, that's the start of it. So if you pray that prayer, send an email. I want to know. ElevateMiamiChurch at Gmail. I'm going to send you something. So if you reach out to us, we're going to send you something. We'll send you something, some good stuff, some free stuff, some stuff to encourage you, some stuff to build you up. And for everyone else, I just want to bless you on Resurrection Day. Come on. I'm going to bless you. So open up your hearts and receive the blessing. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. May he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name. God loves you. 
We love you. Have a wonderful, safe and healthy week in Jesus.